So I'm going to read out the passage and for a bit of context, uh, I will read from the uh, beginning of chapter 3, but today we're just mostly going to be focusing upon verses 8 to 11. Uh, So I'm going to read Titus chapter 3 from verses 1 to 11. This is God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him." Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is God's word. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I want to begin with a, a statement. Good works are essential to the Christian life. Good works are essential to the Christian life. I wonder what thoughts come to mind or maybe what triggers might come to mind when we hear as uh, people in the Protestant tradition of good works being essential to the Christian life. I think sometimes we can suffer from a PCSD, which is like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Sometimes we can suffer from post-Catholic stress disorder and we um we as people who sit within the protestant reformation where we hold to wonderful truths like being justified by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone to the glory of god alone with scripture alone uh, these wonderful truths make us sometimes a bit resistant to this idea of uh, work so when someone seems to be emphasizing works, we kind of get this idea like they're suggesting that somehow we need to have good works to earn God's favor, to earn our salvation or or something like that. And there's a danger that we overreact and we throw the baby out with the bathwater. And all of a sudden we inadvertently undercut and throw away the masses of scripture, which talk about the importance of good works in the Christian life. We've just been through Titus. We've seen it time and time again, this emphasis upon good works or passages like James 2. Faith without works is dead. James is saying there's no, they're not mutually exclusive. 
faith and works, he says, you know, one person might have faith, another has works. Well, I'll show you my faith by my works because faith that is genuine faith is not alone. We're saved by faith alone, but that faith is not alone. Works accompany that faith or revelation too. When Jesus writes to the churches um, throughout the area now, uh, sort of eastern, uh, western Turkey, sorry, when he writes to those churches, Ephesus is the first church off the rank. And he says, um, I know your works. And he's commending them in that. But then he rebukes them and says, but you've forgotten your first love. You've fallen away from your first love. And the thing he says is, therefore, repent and do the works you did at first. Do the works that were promoted by your love for me. So works... Uh, in the context of Scripture, can be really anything that we do for the Lord, from things like helping the poor or telling people the good news of Christ, expressing our love for the Lord, um, the essential disciplines of the Christian life, like word, prayer, and that done in, in the Christian community, this idea of fellowship. There are many, it's, it's very broad to think about works. Uh, but the statement of good works being essential to the Christian life is absolutely true, but it does require qualification. It requires a very careful qualification to, of course, understand that good works are not the um, cause of our salvation. Good works are the result of our salvation. Um, when we are saved, the same grace that has saved us then produces the discipline within us to engage in these good works. So if we rightly understand the, the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of man, then we actually see that we can't do any good works apart from God. In our natural state, we are spiritually dead, which leaves us unable to actually perform these good works. We can't do anything that really glorifies God. It's all tainted by sin until the grace of God appears. And like we went through in chapter 2 from verse 11, the grace of God appears, bringing salvation for all people. And what does that grace that has saved us do? It trains us. It disciplines us. The grace of God trains us so that we would live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age and so that we would renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's what the grace of God does. The grace of God is not cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. It's not cheap grace that doesn't promote anything. The grace of God actually does something within us. It's transformative. To make it even clearer, in verse 14 of chapter 2, just to give a foundation for then when we're going to get to in chapter 3, uh, Paul says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, who have a zeal for good works. That was part of the main purpose of God redeeming us was to purify for himself this people who are then zealous for good works. This is the duty of the Christian that goes hand in hand with the doctrine. Remember, through Titus, there's these themes of doctrine and duty. And our, our duty comes out of our understanding of the doctrine, of the right teaching. So that's a foundation. Let's look now at 
chapter 3, verse 8, of how we engage in these good works. And I want to just look at verse 8 for most of our time and then look at uh, verses 9, 10, and 11 after. But in verse 8, I want to kind of compartmentalize this into three areas. The first is the foundation. The second is the response. And the third is the result. So the foundation for good works, the response that we should have, and then the result after that. Foundation, response, result. The first is the foundation, which we see in the start of verse 8. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Just this first theme here of Paul saying that he wants Titus to insist on these things. Firstly, what are the these things? These things are surely everything that Paul has been talking about in Titus, but particularly, I would say, these verses that we went over last week from verse 3 to verse 7, this beautiful picture of our salvation, this beautiful picture of how we are brought from death to life, Paul says, this are these things I want you to insist on. So I want you to insist on how we ourselves were once foolish, we were once disobedient, we were once led astray by uh, passions, but God's miraculous and wonderful grace came and He rebirthed us. He renewed us. He saved us by His sheer mercy so that by faith in Christ, we would be justified and we would be set on this wonderful trajectory toward future glory that is sealed by nothing else than God himself. These things, Paul wants Titus to insist upon these things. A fair translation of insist is actually to assert. It's like someone who is super pushy with an agenda like certain kind of things that we have in society. I don't know if this is still the case, but I remember a while ago, people who did CrossFit or vegans, you know, were very insistent that this was the best possible thing. And Paul's actually saying, Titus, I want you to be very pushy about this, about these things. I want you to insist upon them. He wants to make sure that the hearers are saturated with these things, absolutely saturated with them. This is the foundation. The foundation for good works is that we are saturated with the gospel, that we ourselves insist upon them and then we receive the teaching which is insistent upon the gospel of Christ, upon these things. And when there is that, we will be saturated with them that becomes the foundation. And the point of this is that there would be a response in those who are saturated with this trustworthy word. So this is the next section here, the response. That's the foundation. And now we have the response. The response is a careful devotion to good work. So the point of Titus insisting upon these things, upon how we are saved, upon the, the fact that we are a possession we have been redeemed and ransomed, is so that believers would be careful to devote themselves to good works. Notice the emphasis here. Notice the emphasis that Paul says. He could have just said, 
as he uses elsewhere, he could have just said, make sure they're devoted to good works. But he says, make sure they are careful to devote themselves to good works. It seems superfluous. To be devoted to something surely implies that you are, there's intentionality, you're careful. Can you really be devoted to something without being, with being careless? There is an emphasis here. There's a greater emphasis. He wants the people to be careful, very careful, to then devote themselves to good works. There's an intentionality here. It's the same theme as we went over in verse 2 of chapter 3. Um, sorry, the end of verse 1 where Paul says, to be ready for every good work, to be prepared for every good work, not just the works that fit in with your schedule and that are going to make you feel good, but actually for every good work, be prepared for every good work. Don't do some cost-benefit analysis of the things that you're going to do. Just be ready for every good work. So we are to be intentional about making ourselves available and devoted to good works. Where does the care come from? If Paul says, make sure they are careful to then devote themselves. Where does the care in the carefulness come from? The care in our response, of course, comes from the foundation, from what we have gone over. That's why Paul tells Titus to insist upon these things, to be insistent about them. Because in being saturated with these things, when we as a community are saturated with these things, namely the gospel of Christ, when we are saturated with these things, we are saturated with the reality that Paul spells out uh, in the end of chapter 2, that we have been purchased, we have been redeemed, we have been bought. In verse 14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This means that you belong to God. This is the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is our only comfort in life and death? That we are not our own. How liberating is that? We are not our own. We don't exist for ourselves. We're free because we belong to him. We belong to God. We have been purchased. He, He, the one who created everything, holds our life in His hands. We have been purchased by Him. So everything that we do is now done in His name and for His glory. And therefore, the flip side of that is everything bad that we do risks bringing His name into disrepute. We can't take all of the privileges of bearing his name and of making our requests in his name. We can't take all of the privileges without taking the weighty responsibility that we bear his name. There is a responsibility to steward the grace that we have been given and to live for the glory of the Lord. Peter, in his second letter, when he's talking about false teachers and warning people not to get sucked in by the false teachers, he says... The false teachers follow their sensuality. This is in chapter 2 of 2 Peter. They follow their sensuality and they bring the way of truth into disrepute. They cause the name of God to be blasphemed. And that's the risk for us. Our lack of care toward what we are devoted to 
results in us causing the way of truth to be blasphemed. We belong to him. We bear his name. So we represent him. We don't want to bring the name of Christ into disrepute. So that's the carefulness. We're careful because we realize that we bear his name. We realize that we, we are to live for his glory. We belong to him. Just a quick question for us to reflect upon. Are you careful or careless with your devotion? Is there a carefulness to your life, thinking about what you do in the workplace? When you're driving down the road and we crazy camber drivers might cut in front of you might get cut in front of or something might happen are you actually representing christ well in that moment or are you ready to stick a finger up or something like that are you careful are you careful with the way that you live with what you are devoted to our saturation with the gospel Make sure I keep joining these together. Our saturation with the gospel should cause an intentional care and devotion in our lives to be engaged in the things which glorify God, to be about the Father's business, to be about these things that bring glory to Him, not about superficial things that everyone else in the world does. Is there an intentionality? Is there a purpose to your life? And this leads us now to the result. So that's the foundation and the response. The foundation is the saturation with the gospel. The response is then giving ourselves carefully, being devoted to good works. And this leads to the result, works that glorify God. These good works that we engage in, as Paul says here, they are excellent and profitable for people which in the end will bring glory to God. Now, before we look at the result of how excellence and profitability for all people does lead to the glory of God, let's be a bit clearer on the good works themselves. We, we went over this a bit a few weeks ago. Earlier in chapter 3, we see how there is this dominant theme in chapter 3 of kind of being a good citizen, um, being someone who lives with intentionality under rulers and authorities. It's in the context of how we as the church engage with the wider society. So it's not tied simply to the Christian community, even though I would say that from the whole of Scripture, I believe that there is clearly uh, a call for the church to prioritize the church over those in the world. There's never a call to neglect those in the world, but there is a call to prioritize. So do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith, as Paul says in Galatians 6. But in this context, Paul is talking about how we be good citizens and serve those in the world. All kinds of people. So the context is in how we engage with the wider society. Uh, Charles Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers gives some examples on what this looks like, which follows a very similar pattern to the character traits Paul lays out in verse 2. So Spurgeon says in uh, what, what good works are, he gives six categories for this. He says it's strict integrity in business, constant courtesy of behavior, 
unselfish love to all around us, quick forgiveness of injuries, abundant patience under trials, and a holy calm and self-possession at all times. A self-control at all times. A holy calm and self-possession. Strict integrity in business. You mean what you say and you say what you do. Have integrity. There are a few uh, very easy practical examples I thought of this that are by no means exhaustive, but just so that no one can say they're too broad, just two practical examples uh, for us in engaging with the wider society, I would say a very helpful way that we can be prepared for every good work is when we are walking around the shops. And though I grew up in Tuggeranong many years ago, and I can't remember many rough sleepers or homeless people in Tuggeranong, but I've actually been quite amazed now that I've been back that there are quite a few in Tuggeranong. And when you walk past a homeless person there begging on the street, at least have the intentionality to address them, to say hello, to engage, when 99% of other people are intentional to not look at them, to look away. And it's amazing psychologically what that can do to just dehumanize them, but to actually have an opportunity to demonstrate God's particular care for the poor, given that God shows this care for the quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the sojourner, just the, the, the vulnerable, the orphan. Uh, be intentional about, at the very least, saying hello. Maybe asking if they need anything. We won't be able to solve poverty. That's not the purpose either. We won't be able to help every single person. But at the very least, we can engage in polite ways with those people recognizing that they are human beings made in the image of God. They are not inferior in any way. A second way I think that we can be intentional about this that we spoke about a few weeks ago is by making a priority to know your neighbor's names. We live in this society that's increasingly digital and online, so it seems weird for neighbors to get to know each other. But that's a wonderful way that we as Christians can actually be ready for every good work is by being intentional about introducing ourselves and knowing our neighbors, being ready so that when the opportunity arises, they might actually come to you for help. Being intentional to not be a hermit, to quickly get out of your car and in the door, and the worst thing would be to make eye contact with a neighbor to actually be intentional about saying hello, inviting them along. These are just two concrete ways, just so that no one could say that it's been too broad. Now, if we think about how these works glorify God, if we think about how engaging in good works must be ultimately for the glory of God, and therefore how do they glorify God? Well, they must be done in a way that reflects His character. And one of the primary ways that we reflect the character of God in our works is by making sure that these works are selfless. There is a selfless to represent the self-giving nature of God in giving of himself to humanity to redeem his children. So this means that we do good works regardless of any recognition we receive. We don't do it for the recognition. We take the same principle that Jesus gives of not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You do it because the works are good in and of themselves. 
And we live in a society now where there is so much virtue signaling that there are all of these works that are done because you're not going to get any flack for them. You're going to get praise. We're not those people. We're not engaging in good works simply because it's going to make us look good. We don't do them to be seen by others or even for our own selfish reasons, like subconsciously or maybe consciously thinking, man, Joanna's going to just think I'm such a wonderful person when I drop this thing off for her. I can't wait to do it. Would you feel the same if that person did not know you did it? We should examine our hearts to make sure that there is no selfishness in this. We engage in good works because the works are good in and of themselves, regardless of what they achieve for us. And when we think about we as a church community, we don't engage in things with ulterior motives. We don't engage in things because we're trying to attract numbers. We engage in things because they are good in and of themselves. And ultimately, they are done for the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon also tells this story of where he asked a young female domestic worker what evidence she had of her conversion. And her answer, her response to the evidence was, I now sweep under the mats. And what she meant was, you know, I used to just sweep in the areas where I knew everyone would look. Now I sweep everywhere, even though I know that no one's ever going to look under the mats. No one's ever going to look in that corner, but the Lord sees everything and I live for him. I have integrity in my work. That's transformation. Being prepared for good works is ultimately for the glory of God. So we don't do things that are simply noticeable or praiseworthy. We do them because they are good in and of themselves. And if we have a right understanding of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, then we can do these things in ways that do not have ulterior motives. If we actually understand God's sovereignty, when we have a right understanding of God's sovereignty, we remember that results are not up to us. Our call is faithfulness. The Lord is sovereign. Results are up to him. Our call is faithfulness to him. So we're not doing good works in order to achieve something other than the glory that it brings to the Lord. And if you don't have this understanding, if you don't have this concrete understanding of God's sovereignty over the works that you do, then you will only ever do good works that lead to something else. You will always have ulterior motives about the things that you do. You will be selective with who you give the good works to. But we are to be impartial. We're to be prepared for every good work, not simply the good works that fit in with our needs. Every good work. There are some wonderful examples of, of this kind of transformation throughout church history where uh, during the plague of uh, the early 4th century, there was this bishop and historian called Eusebius and he wrote about how the Christians, which interesting given that we're coming off the back of some form of a plague over the last two years. Interesting to look at then how Christians back in the fourth century responded to people who had succumbed to plague. And he said, uh, all day long, the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. 
There's another historian who talks about how the Christians were the ones who would tend to the plague victims and many of the Christians died by plague. But one of the most beautiful things that came out of it was this representation of Christ bearing our diseases upon himself. And the Christians actually had an opportunity to do that, to engage in good works in a completely selfless way knowing that they were probably going to die by the, their care and compassion. When everyone else was just deserting plague people, leaving them on the streets and just bouncing, the Christians were gone and said, no way, human beings are made in the image of God, we need to care for them. There was this pagan emperor named Julian the Apostate, who's known as the last pagan, pagan emperor of uh, Rome in the fourth century. And he saw all of this and he grew very frustrated with how good the Christians were. And we have this letter of his where he's writing to a pagan priest. And he says, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by our priests, then the impious Galileans, which is the Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy, the love of man. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. He's basically saying they're making us look really bad because they're caring not only for their own people, but also our people. They're making us look really bad. And he goes on to write to one of the pagan priests and says, look, I want you to copy what the Christians are doing. Just do everything that they're doing because everyone likes what they're doing. and Everyone hates what we're doing. So just copy what the Christians are doing and start caring for the poor with no concern for the poor himself. But basically just seeing that what these people were doing was noble. It was right. These are the works which become excellent and profitable for all people and which bring glory to God. And this is part of the result. They are excellent and profitable. They bring glory to God. And where Paul says that they are excellent and profitable for all people, it could mean that the works that we do will become excellent and profitable for us because it, by engaging in them, they are good for us. Or it could also mean that the works that we do will be excellent and profitable for all people, as in other people, as we do the works, will benefit from them. And I think there's both here. Surely we can see how both of these fit. Good works are excellent and profitable both for those who conduct them, but they are also excellent and profitable for those who are on the receiving end. And where these are done in selfless ways, they reflect the self-giving love of God and they bring glory to Him, which is the ultimate purpose. Remember what Peter says in his first letter, where he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct honorable, engage in good work. So even if they call you evildoers, they will glorify God. We are a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. We are zealous to bring glory to his name. So this is the foundation, the insistence on the teachings of our God, which saturates us with the gospel. The response is that we then become careful to devote ourselves to good works. And the result is that these good works, 
then bring glory to God as they are seen as excellent and profitable, as they are seen as good. Now, Paul contrasts this with verse 9, and I'll just very briefly go through this in verse 9, where he describes what we should avoid. So there is a positive direction towards something, and then there is this negative direction away from something. And the two categories that we have to avoid are, one, we should avoid conversations that perpetuate unhealthy ideas and meaningless speculation. And two, we should avoid people who cause division and remain unrepentant. So the first is unhealthy conversations. Paul says here in verse 9, we should be intentional to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law. Why? Because they are unprofitable and worthless. Paul's main concern here is to do with people who want to discuss tertiary religious things as though they are of first importance. These tertiary things being elevated to the place of primary importance. While he tells Titus to be insistent upon these good things, here he's saying, stay away from people who are insistent upon unhealthy things, upon unprofitable things. There was clearly a similar issue in Ephesus because Paul says basically the same thing to Timothy, where he says, I want you to charge people not to teach false doctrine. And he says, command them not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. These are typically Jewish people who become fascinated with speculation about Jewish myths, about genealogies, kind of elevating the, the, uh, their forefathers or even finding their place in the family tree and having some superiority from that and endless debates upon what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, you know, things like where they created like a hundred plus laws about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Paul is saying, hey, these are unprofitable and worthless. Perhaps a modern equivalent for us is people who might advocate for only one English Bible translation. You can guess which translation usually gets advocated for, but people who specifically say, this is it, everything else is unfaithful, forgetting the fact that every single translation is a translation. Or people who argue with unusual certainty about when Christ is returning. These things that are unprofitable and worthless, not that we ignore the return of Christ, but we obviously recognize that he specifically says no one will know the day or the hour. So we don't focus upon these things. We don't insist upon these things. And if I can make just a slightly larger bridge of application, I recognize that this is a bigger bridge of application than perhaps the text is talking about. But I feel like we don't often, I mean, please tell me afterwards if you come across people perpetuating Jewish myths. I don't come across them all that often. But I think that one of the main things that we should take from this, if the principle here, if the principle in this passage is to avoid what is unprofitable and worthless, then I would say that it's not so much conversations about genealogies and the law that we need to be wary of, but rather gossip-prone conversations, unprofitable conversations, conversations that lead 
toward very worldly things or maybe brainless, mindless TV shows that we might binge upon. Unprofitable and worthless things. We ought to be like the psalmist who says, I will not set anything worthless before my eyes. I won't set anything worthless before my eyes, whether it be a a gossip-prone conversation or whether it be just this endless streaming of drama shows. I won't set anything that is unprofitable or worthless before my eyes. So we should always avoid conversations or practices which stray into worthlessness. But here, Paul also says we should avoid people who continue to perpetuate this division. So he says here, uh, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul is describing here someone who is bringing division by perpetuating the things that he has just spoken about, by perpetuating unprofitable and unfruitful ideas. It's not talking about someone who simply wants to ask questions and learn. It's not talking about even an unbeliever who might have different ideas, but genuinely just wants to understand the Christian faith. It's talking about someone who is the total opposite, who does not have a posture of learning, who is not there to learn anything, and they are literally hell-bent on bringing division. They are unrepentant and they have an obstinate posture. They are stiff in their posture. And Paul says they are warped, sinful, and self-condemned. These are the people that we avoid. We actually stay away from. So we avoid both conversations and people that center around unprofitable and meaningless speculations and quarrels. This is really about a concern for right priorities here. As I just wrap up, this is a concern about right priorities. We are told to give ourselves completely and very carefully to good works. And we are told to abstain from unhealthy and corrupting ideas and people. And if we take it all the way back to the start, this must come from a saturation with what God has done in Jesus Christ. This must come from this reality of what God has done in Christ, that we have been purchased, that we have been redeemed, that we exist for His glory. So we insist upon these things so that we who hold to them will be careful to devote ourselves to good works. And we will be careful when we grasp this reality that we have been purchased in this individualistic, self-centered culture. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for a far greater purpose. We consider others as more significant than ourselves. That is the most liberating thing we could do. That is God's purpose, to be a part of a community where we take this selfless posture and we live for the glory of God. Just to finish, we live corum Deo, like the the Latin phrase of living before the face of God or in the presence of God. That's kind of what this is saying. We always live in the presence of God. We don't walk out of here today and God says, all right, good job, team, off to do what you want to do. We live before His presence. That gives intentionality. That gives fear to what we do. 
We live always before the face of God. We want to glorify Him. And we want to, as a community, just stir each other on to these wonderful realities. We want to bask in the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ, that our sin has been completely paid for and cleansed, and we exist before Him as His redeemed people who are wholly blameless and above reproach. And the way that uh, is often most helpful for us to, to remind ourselves of this is by taking the Lord's Supper, by remembering the body and blood of Christ. And this is a meal for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. So if you have, you're welcome to partake in this meal where we uh, have a, a visible reminder of the body that was hung upon the cross in excruciating fashion, mocked, spat upon the Savior of the world, completely humiliated in our place. The blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The blood which is so pure that all of the vile sins that we have done and will do are completely washed. No sin so wretched that it cannot be cleansed by the blood of Christ. 